Please take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of John, the 8th chapter. And perhaps you know that chapters 7 and 8 of the Gospel of John are set in one week. The place, Jerusalem. Many things are said about Jesus and from Jesus that are very important. As we come to the conclusion of Jesus' time at the Feast of Tabernacles, He had been there for a week. There had been a lot of interaction with different kinds of people. At the end of His stay there, there is this interchange between Him and a group of people whom we have come to know, according to John, as the Jews. It's important to understand that these Jews were an elite group of Jews, elite in their own minds. They were the people who were the power brokers of Judaism. They held the religious power, and they also held the political power. In addition to that, they held the social power. They established the climate in which Judaism grew in Israel. They were people who were eaten up with themselves, quite frankly. They thought they knew everything about anything related to the law of Moses and to the way God, as they understood Him, would have them to live. And now we see Jesus interacting with them today in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. As you turn in your Bible to the 8th chapter of John, I'd like to refer to something that holds a fond memory in my mind. It took place in the 1970s. The CBS magazine 60 Minutes debuted And my favorite segment was point-counterpoint. There were two individuals. James Kilpatrick initially was the conservative voice and Nicholas von Hoffman, the liberal voice. And they would take a current event or something going on in the culture and they would debate it. Point-counterpoint, back and forth. The debate many times was rather heated, but it never became hostile. What we're going to discover in this passage of Scripture is that Jesus finds himself in a point-counterpoint relationship with the Jews. A point is made, then a counterpoint. We're going to see three such interchanges. And in each interchange, the Jews, the religious leaders, the elitists, they gave their point, and then Jesus gives counterpoints. In the first set of exchanges... The Jews make their point, but Jesus makes two counterpoints. It's like two boxers boxing. And if you know anything about boxing, I know very little, so I'm going out on a limb with this illustration. But what I know about boxing is that many times a boxer will throw a punch and not land. And those who are interested in statistics keep track of how many punches miss the mark and how many punches hit the mark. Well, these Jews threw three roundhouse strokes at Jesus, and none of them landed. But Jesus gives us five statements that hit the mark each time. And they are claims to who Jesus is. These claims increase in intensity as Jesus moves toward the climax with the fifth claim. In the Mount Everest of all the claims which he made, perhaps, you can be the judge of that. It really doesn't matter what we think. God knows which is most important. It's all his word, and it's important for us to understand that. So having given that as a background, let's dive right in. Remembering that Jesus took off the gloves here, and also the Jews had taken off their gloves, and there were no love taps. They were going after it. Let's take a look at this section of Scripture, and I'll read the entire section and come back and deal with it piece by piece, beginning with verse 48 of John 8. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? This is the first point the Jews make to Jesus, and then Jesus counters. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Of course, he's talking about God the Father. 
Then he makes another counterpoint. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. This leads to the second series of debate issues with the point of the Jews in verse 52 and following. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? In other words, who do you think you are, Jesus? That's what they're saying. Then Jesus responds with two more counterpoints in verse 54. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Another counterpoint in 55. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. We now have another statement that's a continuation of that. As Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Now the last series of interchanges with the Jews point. In verse 57, the Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus' final counterpoint, this time only one. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And commenting on this, John says, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The first point made by the Jews is in verse 48. He said, they say to Jesus, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? This debate had been going on a little while. We saw it recently. But when someone is losing a debate, they resort to slamming the character or the reputation of the individual. And we see them doing that with Jesus. They call him a Samaritan and a demoniac. Now, let's take those one by one. Perhaps you know the history of the Samaritan people. When Solomon was finished reigning as king in Israel, his son Rehoboam followed in the monarchy. And Rehoboam was approached by the elders who came to him and said, Sire, if you will consult us and consider our advice, then we will serve you gladly. He said, I'll have to think about that. And he consulted with his peer group, bad idea. They were yes men, undoubtedly. And they said, this is what you tell those old codgers. You tell them that your little finger is thicker than your father's thighs. Well, he liked the sound of that. And Rehoboam goes back when he finally had another meeting with these people. And he says just what he was told he should say. And it resulted in a civil war. The nation split wide open. Ten tribes of the north became known simply as Israel. The two tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south, and remember that Jerusalem was in the region of Judah. So that was a very important place for all those who were descendants of Abraham because of the feasts and the temple where those feasts were celebrated. The result was that those ten tribes became arch enemies with the southern tribes And they never reunited again. Sad story, to say the least. In the 8th century B.C., the most powerful nation in the region, Assyria, attacked Samaria. The capital was Samaria. They attacked Samaria. And they just wiped out all the infrastructure of Israel. And they took the best of the best off with them into exile, and then they replaced all these people whom they had exiled into another region with pagan people from other lands which they had conquered. And those pagan people intermarried with those poorer descendants of Abraham who had been kept behind. And centuries passed now, 8th century B.C. to what we call the 1st century A.D., where Jesus is living. And by this time, after centuries of melding together, the religion of the Samaritans had some slight resemblance to what Moses had taught, but not a whole lot. Justin Martyr, 
who was one of the early church fathers in the Christian faith. He lived in the late 1st century, early part of the 2nd century A.D. He himself was born in Nablus, which was in the region of Samaria. And he said this about the Samaritans. The Samaritans were idolatrous, by and large, and among them were many magicians. When these Jewish leaders called Jesus a Samaritan, they were saying, you are a charlatan. You are a false teacher. You are the lowest of the low. They called him that. These words would have stung any self-respecting Jewish person. Jesus was reviled. He was persecuted by such statements. They must have hurt. And then to call Jesus a demonized person, that would have really hurt as well. They cast aspersions upon Jesus, which led to his first claim, point made by the Samaritan, I mean the Jews calling Jesus a Samaritan and a demoniac. And Jesus gives his counterpoint. He says in verse 49, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me, but I do not seek my glory. Here's what Jesus was saying. I honor my Father by glorifying Him. And how do we glorify the Lord today if we know Him? Here's how we glorify Him. We let our light shine in such a way that men will see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. So when Jesus says, I honor my Father by glorifying Him, He was indicating, I honor my Father by doing exactly what the Father has given me to do. Would you turn to John chapter 5? As we remember some things that we have looked at before in the Gospel of John, verses 19 and 20, which underscores what Jesus is saying in this first claim, that He honors His Father by glorifying Him, and by implication, that means He does the good works which He was prepared in advance to do. Look at verse 19 of chapter 5. Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself. We hear Jesus glorifying the Father by saying this about Himself. It was an accurate assessment of Jesus' behavior. Unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. You see, the Father and the Son... We're intimate with each other. And it didn't start when Jesus became a human being. It predates Jesus being created as a human being in the womb of His mother Mary. He was God prior to that. He retained His deity, although He submitted His prerogative, His rights as God to the Father, so He would not do anything except He saw the Father doing it or heard the Father saying it. And so... Jesus and the Father were intimate. There's a statement that Jesus makes in John 14, 21. Perhaps you know it. It goes like this. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Does that mean that the love of God in Jesus is hinged to our obeying His commands. Well, not in the fuller sense, but in the more near sense, it has a connection. Because we cut off fellowship, not relationship, but fellowship with Christ and therefore with the Father if we disobey. And those who are obedient to Jesus, what does He say? The Father will love Him and I will love Him and we will disclose ourselves to Him or her. Do you know why some people are closer to the Lord now than maybe I am or you are? It's directly related to the fact that they have listened intently to the Father, just like Jesus did. And they have sought to follow the Lord. You want to get closer to the Lord? Remember, God doesn't have any favorites but He does have intimates. And they are those who have learned the invaluable lesson of honoring the Father 
by glorifying the Father, by doing what the Father has given them to do. So Jesus says, I don't have a demon. I honor my Father. If you go back now to John chapter 8, He says, There is one who seeks and judges. And He's speaking of God the Father. He gives another counterpoint to the way in which He's spoken about and to when He's called a Samaritan and a demon. The first is what? What's His first claim? I honor my Father by glorifying my Father by doing what He created me to do. That would be true for us. Please remember what we are told at the beginning of the book of John. Of the fullness of Jesus, we have all received and grace upon grace. How much of Jesus did you receive when He came into your life? When you responded to what the Bible says, but as many as received Him, that means welcoming Him into your life. As many as received Him... To them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. When you received Him, how much of Him did you receive? What does the Bible say? Of His fullness we've all received. The bigger question for us is, how much has He received of us? That's the bigger question. And this text that we're studying today is going to give us more insight about that need in our lives So, Jesus has given His first point, but now He goes to His second point in verse 51. In answer to the first point, this is His second counterpoint to the Jews' accusation about Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps My word, he shall never see death. Now, this is one of the more remarkable statements of Jesus. Everything which Jesus says is remarkable. But this is close to the top of the list. And it really resonates with us. Because we know it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that comes the judgment. But Jesus makes this powerful statement. Truly, truly. And remember that whenever Jesus uses this way of introducing a statement, He's really saying, be alert. This is something of vital importance to you. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, the word translated keep, the opposite of that word, used often as an antonym for the word keeps here in the New Testament, is the word, the opposite word is disregards something. So what would this say about what it means to keep the word of Christ? It means to hold it in the highest regard. And therefore we guard it. We protect it. We value the Word of the Lord. We abide in the Word, remembering what Jesus has taught us recently in this same chapter when He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps on abiding in My Word, he shall know the truth, and the truth shall make that person free. So guarding the Word of Jesus, and this is where it gets really instructive and encouraging. The last part of verse 51. He shall never see death. Let me do a little interpreting here. He shall not never, is what it literally says, incompatible with English grammar or Spanish grammar, but in Greek grammar, perfectly acceptable. If the reader or the writer or the speaker wants to hear something or say something or write something in a way that expresses that something in a way that's unmistakably going to happen, Using the negative. He's saying, He who keeps my word shall not never ever see death, not even once, is what this is saying. Is that encouraging to you? Man, that is encouraging. That is the good news to us. And Jesus makes His second claim. What is His first claim? I honor my Father by glorifying my Father. That's the first claim. And here he says, I will take the sting out of death. I want to talk one more moment about how Jesus himself, giving us the example to follow, and not simply giving us the example, but coming to live in us, to empower us to do as he did when it came to being falsely accused. He 
committed his reputation to the father rather than exercising retaliation. This story, which we read from 2 Kings, set in a village known as Dothan in Israel. Elisha, the great man of God, and his servant, who is unnamed, they're there together in probably a very modest home. And one morning after a night's sleep, the servant walks outside, and I can in my mind's eye see him stretching, just trying to wake up, and all of a sudden as he looks to the rim which surrounded this village or city of Dothan, there was a rim around it. And in the heights, amazingly, he saw this amazing Aramean army. And he's scared to death. He runs back in. He says, My Lord, what shall we do? And then this is what he said, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And this servant must have sort of shaken his head and maybe peeked back out the door to see if there was something he missed, but he didn't see anything different. And then Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, please open his eyes. His eyes were open, and he saw surrounding that vast army of Arameans, this superior force, was an even more superior and larger force which God had shown this servant. It was an army of horses and chariots of fire. And then another prayer is offered by the man of God. And he says, please blind the Aramean soldiers. And they are blinded. And so Elisha, imagine this man. We don't know how old he was. Probably middle-aged at least, maybe even older. He takes his servant. They go and interact with the military leadership of the Arameans and say, follow us. Wouldn't you like to have been able to see that? I don't know how many soldiers there were, but a lot. And chariots and horses and everything. Follow us. And they led them into the capital of Israel, Samaria. And when they got there, word had already preceded them that this was going to happen. And the king had gotten word. And he was licking his chops. It's our time. We're going to do away with the heart of the military of our arch enemy. And when Elisha arrives, the king says, can we kill them? And he doesn't say it just once. He was giddy. Can we kill them? And what did Elisha say? No, you can't. Here's what God wants you to do. Feed them and give them something to drink. And they did. And then Elisha makes this unusual prayer. He says, open their eyes so they can see. So all of a sudden the scales fall from the eyes of these blinded Arameans and Remarkably, what happens? What does it conclude by saying in verse 23? They did not raid Israel again. The Arameans did not raid them again. You see, if we leave matters in the hands of the Lord, instead of taking matters into our own hands, the result is that God wins a solid victory as opposed to some temporary victory It would have been fun for the king of Israel and his soldiers to begin hacking away at these blind, defenseless Aramean soldiers. There would have been some temporary enjoyment from that and a sense of accomplishment. But in the book of Romans, chapter 12, Paul picks up this theme of trusting the Lord and committing our reputations to the Father when he says, Do not repay evil for evil. And do not take vengeance into your own hands. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. The Lord will repay. Is there someone that has been rude to you? Somebody who's been mean to you? Things have been said, maybe even done to you, and it just eats away at you when you have an idle moment and that person uninvited comes into your mind and you begin to think about that person, and you just stew over it, you probably imagine, man, if I ever get the opportunity, I'm going to let this person have it. Has anybody besides me ever said that? Yeah? You probably have, and hopefully you haven't, but I'm sorry to say I've done that more than once. It's foolish, isn't it? But we leave it in the Lord's hands. When 
Israel was just barely out of captivity. They found themselves perched on the shore of the Red Sea. And word got to them that Pharaoh had reconsidered. He got his crack troops, his charioteers and horsemen, and they were bearing down on this basically defenseless group of people, even though there probably were over a million of them, bearing down on them. And they didn't know what to do. And the Lord came to Moses, and this is what he said, Tell the people that the Lord will fight for them. Their part is to only be still. Now, wait a minute. Are we just to stand here and take it? Well, what happened was the cloud, which had been guiding them by day and night, came in between them and the Egyptians. And the Egyptians, I know, could be heard, and I don't think they were quiet on the other side. They were taunting them probably, threatening them, telling them what they were going to do to them when finally they could get to them. They were going to just mob them and kill them, murder them. And then this word comes and it says, The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be still. The word translated be still is a word, depending on the context in which it's used in the Old Testament, it either means to not say anything or not listen to something. And sometimes it can be combined, and I believe this is one of those times the message was clear. Don't listen to what these people are saying and don't speak back to them. My initial reaction when someone says something I don't like, I want to get in his or her face. I want to just, yeah. <laughs> Anybody live in a house like that? It's not a wise way to act, is it? And we don't have to act that way. And if we do act that way, we're fools. That's what the Bible says. Because we take the place of God. We don't let God work in the lives of the people who have offended us. He does a perfect job of correcting them. He does it. Christ honors the Father by leaving revenge in the Father's hands. And here's one thing that I probably would have overlooked if I hadn't looked at my notes. Jesus doesn't deny being a Samaritan. He denies being a demonized person. He's not demonized. I don't have a demon, Jesus said. But he does not deny being a Samaritan. What did that do for the Samaritans? It let them know that he was their Savior too. He was not simply the Savior of the full-blooded descendants. He was the Savior of all who would come to him and trust in him. How do we escape the trap of self-glory? I know I have wrestled with this so much in my life, I'm embarrassed to admit it. Wanting glory for me. This is common, I believe, to most of us. Jesus could honor the Father only if He did not seek His own glory. That's true for us too. We are to trust God to give us glory when we can handle it. Where it won't puff us up. Where it won't go to our heads where we won't take it and run with it and just be like Satan and try to take the role of God in our lives. Remember what Jesus teaches in Luke 16. In Luke 16, verse 15, Jesus says this, "...that which is highly prized by man is detestable in the sight of the Lord." We as men, we want to be number one. We want to be related to others who are high achievers. We get some sense of value from that. And it's really a trick and a trap of the devil. You and I need to realize when we identify with Jesus like He identified with the Father, that our life and the things we stand for, our beliefs, will be reviled just like Christ's person and what He taught about Himself, about God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Those things were reviled by the religious leaders of the day. Jesus says, when a student is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. When you and I are growing in our discipleship with Christ, we're going to become more like him. And Jesus says, if the world hates you, 
Don't you know that it hated me before it hated you? Jesus also says that blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Jesus says this. So we will be glorified, and this is what Jesus says in this text. We're going to see it in just a moment. The third point he makes about claim he makes. The first claim is what? I will honor, I do honor the Father and glorify Him by doing what He tells me to do. And the second claim is, I remove the sting of death from those who trust me. Do you know, we who know Jesus, we really have life now. We have what is called eternal life. And eternal life is not something which waits at the end of the corridor of life when this life is over. Then we have eternal life because Jesus says, for instance, in John 5:24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has, not will have, we will have, but has eternal life. So eternal life begins the moment we trust Christ. We have a down payment of heaven. This is the way Paul talks about it. He says about the Holy Spirit is God's earnest money, promising that He's going to finish it. It's the word in the original language. Arabon is the way it sounds in the original language. It was used, for instance, to describe an engagement ring that a man gave to a woman as a promise. It was a promise ring. And it's, the Holy Spirit is our promise ring that God the Father has given us assuring us that we're on our way and we're experiencing in part what heaven's going to be like in full someday. And we are in life now, but we're going to transition. When we meet death, we will zoom right past it and we will go from life to life with all caps because we'll be with the Lord forever. People who do not know Jesus, and there's some people in this room, I don't know who you are, but I know in a crowd this large, many of you are exploring the possibility of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is what's true. It was true of us who have come to know Christ. We were dead spiritually. The Bible says it's for you. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. And then we were born again by the living and abiding Word of God. Christ gave us life where there was only death. And people without Christ, if they leave this life without having come to Christ, they will go from death to death in all caps. It's what's described as the second death by the book of Revelation. And there's no escaping. Do you know you can escape the death that you're in today if you don't know Christ? Do you know that? It's one step from being dead to being alive. Jesus is calling you today. He's saying to you, I love you. I love you so much. I gave my life to pay for your sin. I ask if you want to follow me for you to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. In other words, you've got to give control of your life to me, Jesus says, without reservation. When you do, then you come from a place of spiritual death to spiritual life. Let's get back to the text and let's look at the second point in verse 2, and this point-counterpoint, verse 52, I should have said, and this point-counterpoint exchange between the Jews and Jesus. Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. I mean, they were getting enraged by now at the suggestion. And they knew what Jesus was saying. He hadn't said it quite the way he's going to say it before we finish looking at this passage. But they knew he was hinting at this man is saying he's God because nobody has the power over death except God. He's saying it. that People won't taste death if they keep his word. Verse 53, he go, the Jews go on to say, Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be anyway is what they're saying. They were getting it, and they didn't like it. And, of course, Jesus was greater than Abraham. And He was greater than the prophets. 
Now look at Jesus' first counterpoint in this verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. Here's the third claim. First claim, Jesus says, I honor my Father by glorifying Him. Second claim, I remove the sting of death from the lives of those who follow me. Third thing, he's saying here, the Father has me as the object of His glory. The Father is glorifying me. And this was just unimaginable to the enemies of Jesus. He goes on to say a fourth claim here in verse 55. You have not come to know Him, but I know Him. And if I say that I do not know Him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know Him and keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So here's the fourth claim Jesus makes. I know the Father. And we've already seen He knew the Father because the Father and He were intimate. And we know we can know the Father like Jesus does. And we begin by getting to know Jesus. Jesus was asked by Philip, one of His apostles, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And then Jesus says, Have I been so long with you, Philip, and you still do not know Me? He who has seen Me has seen the Father. So, see Jesus, you see the Father. Know Jesus, you know the Father. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And Jesus knows the Father. And because Jesus will come and live in our lives if we trust Him with our lives and we sell out to Christ, the result is we will know the Father too through Jesus, of course. And he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The phrase, my day, would have really rubbed the Jews the wrong way. They believed in the coming Messianic age, but Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah. And by the way, the Feast of Tabernacles was of all the feasts of Israel, the feast which focused most on the coming of the Messiah, the day of the Lord. And so, he's saying, I am the one that Abraham saw and rejoiced. There's been quite a bit of discussion as to what this refers to. This is my belief. I believe what we saw a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, about Abraham when Abraham in Genesis 22 is told by God to take his son, his only son Isaac, to Mount Moriah and then there to sacrifice him. Do you remember that? And Hebrews tells us that Jesus was prefigured in Isaac and Abraham saw Christ in all that experience when the father substituted a ram whose horns were caught in the thicket and that ram was sacrifice. And the Scripture says in the book of Hebrews that Abraham thought, even if I go to the point of obeying the Lord and slit my son's throat and let his blood, and he dies, then the Lord's going to raise him from the dead. Now this is the picture. This is the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the thing that validated Jesus as being the Son of God. He was the Son of God. But had He not been raised from the dead, He would have been invalid. That's what the book of Romans tells us. Read it carefully in the first chapter of Romans. And then more is said in the fourth chapter of Romans. But what we need to understand here is that Jesus was seen by Abraham and Abraham was glad because it was through his seed, Isaac, and then a descendant of Isaac's would be the seed And the whole world, including us, would be blessed. Even those of us who have no Jewish blood coursing through our veins. Even we could become children of the living God. And we are on even ground with every other child of God. Not because there's anything necessarily 
great about us, it's because we serve a great God whose grace is immense. As David prayed the prayer earlier out of 1 John chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we might be called the children of God. And such we are. We are children of the living God. And the word what manner translates a very rare New Testament word which means out of this world kind of love. That's the kind of love God shows to us. It's out of this world. We know nothing like it except in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus speaks of the fourth claim. I don't want you to forget these claims. I'm hoping you're writing them down. What's the number one claim? I honor and glorify my Father. What's the number two claim? I take away the sting of death from those who follow me. I take it myself, is what he's saying. The third thing is, I am the object of the Father's glory. And how did that glory first show up? When Christ was raised up, He said, if I be lifted up. He was talking about His crucifixion. It was His highest moment of glory. Can you imagine? Why? Because He loved us so much that He was dying for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And now He has taken His place as our high priest at the right hand of the throne of God. So He intercedes for us who know Him. So when Satan comes against us and accuses us when we sin, we do sin. We don't want to sin, but we do at times sin. And when we do, we know we have an intercessor with the Father, Jesus, who intercedes for us day and night. Well, let's look at the final point, counterpoint. Verse 57, The Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? They were dumbfounded. And then here comes one counterpoint. This encompasses everything which Jesus has said about Himself, really. It's the, as I mentioned earlier, the apex of all his sayings about himself found in Scripture, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Notice he did not say, Before Abraham was born, I was. If that had been the case, Jesus could have been a created being. The Father could have created him before Abraham in some way that would have been possible for the Father, and he had just lived all that time. But that's not what happened. And that's not what is said here. Notice carefully what Jesus says about Himself. Before Abraham was, I am. And when God revealed Himself personally to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses asked, Whom shall I tell Pharaoh sent me? Whom shall I tell your people sent me? And He said, Tell them that I am who I am sent you. I am. It's the verb of being in Hebrew. Yada. Yahweh, rather. Not Yada. Yada means I know. But Yahweh. And when he said that, he was saying, I will be who I will be. Seven times in the Gospel of John, seven is a perfect number, as you well know in biblical numerology, he says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door to the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Seventh one, I am the true vine. He says all these things about himself. And in each statement, he couples the ego I me, I am, the way God revealed himself to Moses with some aspect of who he is. And each one of those aspects is his becoming what we need. Do we need him as the bread of life? Do we need him as the light of the world? Do we need him as the keeper of the sheepfold? Do we need him as the good shepherd who lays down his life for us as sheep? Do we need him as the way, the truth, the life, the resurrection and the life? Do we need him as the true vine? Of course we do. We need him. And then in verse 59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. They knew he was blaspheming. And pay attention to this, please. They picked it 
up the stone that each hand picked up, picked it up because they were charged by the law of Moses in Leviticus 24:16 to stone somebody who blasphemed, which means claimed to be God. They knew he was claiming to be God, and he was, but their eyes were blinded by the God of this age who was their father, who was a liar and a murderer. And they were taking up the cause of their father. And we need to think about this in relationship to cultic groups. I'll just use one. I hate to pick on one, but time won't permit. I'm not picking. I'm just revealing. I'm hoping you'll see. Some of you come from a Jehovah's Witness background. I know that because I've talked to you. And Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is not God, fully God. He's a God with a little g. There's only one God. That's Jehovah. And we believe Jehovah God, but Jehovah God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this idea of their picking up stones to throw at Jesus because he says, before Abraham was, I am, they knew he was claiming to be God. They knew it. And later, he has a similar experience when he says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. They will hear my voice. They are my sheep. They will follow me. I will give eternal life to them. They shall never perish. They will be in my hand. They will never be snatched out of my hand. They will be in the Father's hand. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. And until that point, there was no outrage expressed by the crowd of people listening to this teaching. But then he says, I and the Father are one. When that verse of Scripture is pointed out to a Jehovah's Witness, they'll say, what this really means is that Jesus and the Father were one in purpose. Well, that's true. But they were one in purpose, the Jews were, with the Father in their own thinking, weren't they? Sure they were. And they didn't pick up stones to stone each other. They, in that passage, after Jesus says, I and the Father are one, a group of people, maybe some of these same people, picked up stones to throw at Jesus because they said he's claiming to be God. Well, the claim was not false. The claim is true. Jesus is God become man. Fully God, fully man. And then the last part says Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. A probable interpretation of this, because the word translated hid himself can be spelled the very same way and yield this interpretation or translation. But Jesus was hidden. The Father hid Him, I think. And He was therefore under the protection of the Father. Do you know we have the same protection of the Father? And when we are intimidated by the devil and His emissaries, we need to remember this event that Jesus was hidden and He just walked away. Now, Jesus was eventually arrested, tried falsely, crucified on a cruel cross, but it was not until the time was right and the Father gave him the wherewithal to go through that and accomplish his mission for the joy which was set before him. And we need, when we're under difficulties because of our identification with Christ, we need to remember what David wrote. In Psalm 56, 3 and 4, he says, When I am afraid, I will trust in God whose word I praise. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? And the answer is obvious, nothing. Nothing. For to me to live is Christ, Paul said, but to die is gain. That's what Paul believed. That's what Jesus did for us to allow that. Well, as I try to... Wrap this up. There's a lot of information here. A lot of application for us. In Great Britain, there is a queen. She's been sitting as a monarch for over six decades. Queen Elizabeth. And from every observation on my part, she's done a great job. The people, most of them at least, they pay respect to her. But she has no power over their lives. It's a democracy that rules the nation. She has no power. She's sitting on the throne, but she's not ruling. Do you know, sometimes that's the way we treat Jesus. We want Him in our lives, by all means. We need some fire insurance. 
We need Him to do stuff for us. When we're in trouble, we'll cry out to Him, Lord, help me, help me, help me. And He does it. Most of the time, He does. But He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you understand? If we were able to gather all the kings who have ever occupied thrones, all the queens who ever occupied thrones, and got them in one place, it would take a full country to take care of all these people throughout history. Do you know Jesus is their King? And Jesus is their Lord. And Jesus says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Jesus is our Savior. By all means, thank you, Lord, for being our Savior. But He is our Lord. He is the one to rule us. The Bible says in the book of 2 Samuel 14, 14, like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. This will catch you by surprise perhaps, but God does not take away life. Instead, He devises ways so that the banished person might not remain estranged from God, separated from God. And in Ezekiel 18, God says, Why won't you live, O Israel? Repent of your sin and live. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. Our God does not want anybody to die and go into a hell forever. That's why He's given us Jesus who did that for us. Would you bow your head? Perhaps you're here today and you know that you're not a follower of Christ and you're exploring that. And our encouragement to you today is to cry out to Christ Let Him know that you want Him to be your Lord. The Lord of every part of your life. Your financial life, your sexual life, your family life, your recreational life, all of your life. Maybe you know the Lord, but you've taken some of the territory that belongs to Him back. And you need to ask Him, to recover that ground which you have taken back from Him. Would you pray to the Lord? Jesus, we want You to be our Lord. I know I'm weak, Lord. I'm praying about Mike Woods. I'm weak. The Spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak, Lord. And I just ask You, Lord, that You do this in my heart as well as all the people in this room, whether we already know You or don't, that we yield ourselves to You, Lord. We just say, be our Lord. Be our King. Thank You, Jesus. Amen.